General weirdness has descended so rapidly on Western civilization that there's really little time left to explain anymore or to ask why things are the way they are. There's only man getting himself together and claiming the environment back from Painesville, where it has strayed far from home. There's little time left to explain it, but we've got to let go of all the petty squabbling, the putting on of the blame and the shame. We must be firm, resourceful, and demanding. It's hard to believe, but all and everything is perfect in this world, and all that existence is is discovering the unknown and mapping it out for the pleasure of our fellows. Nothing is owed. Nothing is due. It's all here for our enjoyment. There's a secret purpose behind everything, and not what people see. A new way theater fact of life says that what we see is exactly that which keeps us from seeing. I've seen the Earth from deep inside and from millions of miles away. I've seen the entire universe like a clock with its intricate workings, a Swiss watch with each little perfect piece in place, the size of a watch. I've held that watch in my hand, and I've looked at it, but had no hands. Take it all to heart. Give it. Share it. Wear it. It's no accident you're chosen. It's no accident you're watching. To whom much is given, much is expected. On behalf of our producer, All World Stage, this is your shoemaker host, Shoulder Boy Ivers, wishing you a shrinking shuttle to the show bar of Chandra. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today with Kelly, and I want to introduce you, your host, Peter Ivers. A remarkable band, Earth Lies Burning, is behind me. Josh, tell me something about these guys. They're great. Lies burning. Another six-year-old, just to show you that the youth of today care about the news. It is
Eduardo and Raul. Earth lies burning. Earth lies burning. I Earth dies burning, much stronger. Yeah, excuse me. Is the Earth dying? Well, you see, as time goes on, the Earth dies. You think there's any hope for the planet from your point of view? Um, I don't know. Why don't you ask me what the meaning of life is? What's the meaning of life? What kind of question is that? I mean, listen. I've been watching your show for a long time now, and when you ask me a question like that, it really makes me mad, because I planned for the show. I thought, what kind of food do you eat? What was your favorite movie star? Something like that. Then he asked me what... <laughs> instead of playing for a second, instead of playing for a second, break character and just be yourself. <laughs> Is there any hope for the planet? Uh, not with people like we have in power now. What can we do about it? Kill them. Bad news. Kill them. Kill the leaders. And you think there's a positive solution that could be had? Uh, ask Brad. No, I see that there's this, a positive guy and a negative guy here, and that I we hear a lot of negativity thrust upon us in all other ways. How does your negativity hope to change things? Um, well, we don't hope to change anything at all. Um, yeah, they, they like Norman Skates. They like to change those. They don't like the commercial that well, so. This shows the popularity of products advertised on New Wave Theater. Hello, my name is Michael. Norman Skates. And you are listening to. Zach and I sang that song. Choking on Cufflinks here on WFMU. And uh, this is a very special edition of Choking on Cufflinks as we are focusing on Peter Ivers, both his life and the great New Wave Theater. I'm here with Ian Marshall, who is a filmmaker who is currently working on Terminal Love, the documentary on the great Peter Ivers. Want to say hi? Hello. And uh, what did we just listen to? That was a group of teenagers called the Earth Dies Burning, and they um, they are from the L.A. area, and I think that's from about May 82, and uh, so they ripped into their song, and then uh, we had the typical New Wave Theater Peter Ivers uh, confrontational interview at the end, and uh, I think that those, those kids are ranging from about 12 to... Uh, 15 years in age when they were on the show and uh, the drummers playing on pots and pans and buckets and sheet metal and uh, they have an oboe player who's like a 12 year old Mexican kid and uh, various other uh, teenage characters so uh, I thought it was pretty impressive now Peter Ivers was the host of New Wave Theater which ran for three years out in LA Yes, it was uh, a little over two years from early 80 till, um, well, I guess early 83, although Peter was, they stopped taping in late 82. Now, set this up for me. I'm home. It's what day of the week? It's like a... Well, uh, 
across the country, when New Wave Theater went national in mid-1981, they started showing episodes as part of Night Flight on the USA Network. Uh, it would be Friday and Saturday nights at midnight till 4 a.m., usually loaded toward the 4 a.m. side of things. And um, they, they didn't start getting involved in the production of New Wave Theater until 82, but they started running the shows intermittently uh, mid-81. So you might have found yourself in Wisconsin or somewhere uh, watching Neil Young, Russ Never Sleeps, as part of a Night Flight episode. Night Flight was a, uh, I guess it was kind of like FM radio on the television. They, they showed music documentaries mixed with music videos, mixed with uh, programming that kind of compiled music videos thematically, like they'd show a, a half hour of videos um, all set at the beach. And so they tried to do kind of funny uh thematic things like that but new wave theater was definitely the edgiest thing on night flight although they they showed residence videos and uh, and other things that kind of uh wet the appetite and set the stage for new wave theater uh but yeah so you might you could have tuned into this in 1981 anywhere that carried uh the usa network so, so if I had cable and I was like 16 and living in the suburbs, I could sneak up, wake up, and catch Earth Dies Burning playing another six-year-old. Yes, you could have. And I think, I'm not sure what the number is, but at different times I've heard it was in 10 million or 20 million homes, New Wave Theater. That doesn't mean people were tuning into it, but, you know, theoretically one could have. So let's take a step back. Tell me. Who is Peter Hivers, and how did New Wave Theater come about? That's a good question. Uh, Peter Hivers, it's a, it's a, it might have to be split up into into multiple parts. Okay, then let's let's start with uh, a, a a question about general weirdness. Peter Hivers, host of the New Wave Theater, would do these little rants, right? These kind of amazing introductions. How did, you know, tell me about what do you see in them? What do you, how did he position himself? Well, those rants um, were written for him, actually. They aren't his own words. The interviews were all Peter thinking on his feet, interacting in reality with the bands uh, live. The, um, the monologues were scripted um, to the letter and written on cue cards by uh, the show's producer, David Jove and his collaborator, uh, a guy named Ed Oakes, who was a um, rock writer who was like the music, I, I think the live music editor for Billboard in the late 70s. They were both Crowley um, aficionados, followers. They were part of OTO, founding members of the American branch of OTO, which is a secret society that um, Aleister Crowley founded in England. Uh, a hundred or so years ago, and um, they were immersed in the occult in the 70s and obsessed with it, and they were obsessed with um, alien visitation and other themes and the end of the world and the apocalypse. And so um, this bleeds into those monologues, which they wrote for Peter. I think Peter was great at reading them, great at performing them, but they weren't, they weren't his, but... Um, but that's really a big part of New Wave Theater is that they, they all are always trying to push some philosophy on you. And uh, so that's what I get out of the monologues is I think they're entertaining. They're well-written. They have a lot of great um, poetic 
qualities and uh and they're fun but uh i don't know i'm not sure that's what peter's big contribution to the show was but uh maybe it's time for a song and then we'll go back to uh you know his story how he got involved okay now most of the a lot of the new wave theater artists were based out of la but what we're about to hear one of the legendary bands of uh synth punk and synthy new wave Los microwaves from the bay area here this is probably from like 1980 i think they had an lp out on posh boy here's their classic tv in my eye
can expose their bare flesh to this. These guys came down from San Francisco. Here's David Ha-Ha-Ha-Veloso, Meg, and Todd. David, I've heard it said that pain is a rich man's pleasure. Uh, is that true? It depends on where you're coming from. And where are you coming from other than the Bay Area? San Francisco. And what's the... We're not coming for money yet. The clothes are very good, though. I noticed at the end of the song that you arrive in almost a straight-jacketed position. Is that any reference to the mental institution? Uh, no, but I've been sleeping in a sleeping bag all week. So you guys are traveling up and down the coast just looking for a place to hang your head and play the music? Sort of, yeah. This is one of the bands that we discussed earlier because of their witty, sarcastic, even angry demeanor. What about anger? You guys have a lot of anger? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pissed as hell. At whom, at what, and why? Just uh, general existence. Is there anything that you can do through your music or through the lyrics to change the way things are to make that general existence more pleasurable? Do you think that through your lyrics you can change anybody or change anybody's mind? Just the members of the band. We're going to turn the members in. Next week, meet us at the Olympic. Meg and David will wrestle it out in mud. Attack your heart, your heart will attack you. Every time you attack your heart, your heart will attack you. Love, once you start to attack your heart, it'll leave you black and blue. You can beg your body to fight disease, organize the organism. Make your body to fight disease Organize the organism But when love builds up for its deadly thrust It'll break down your resistance Your legs will give you the run around Your knees will let you down Your vital parts will defeat you Your heart is gonna beat you
Terminal Love by the Peter Rivers Band, 1974. I'm here with Ian Marshall. Hello. And uh, so Ivers came out of that kind of thing. He was a Harvard-educated musician, composer. What was his major at Harvard? Classics. So he was um, he was majoring in classics. He was up on all of that, all of his. Um, Greek mythology and things like that, but his uh, his pastime at Harvard was working as a lighting designer under this um, this theatrical director prodigy named Tim Mayer, and so um, he became like a master of lighting and set decorating and and set building, and so he um, did a lot of different kinds of things at Harvard around that same time that that he was studying and and getting good grades. He befriended. Doug Kenny, the um, founder of National Lampoon magazine, that was one of his best buddies out of Harvard. So he's running with this really hyper intellectual, um, ahead of their time, um, you know, not quite the snobs, but not quite the slobs, to use Animal House uh, terminology, uh, while he was at Harvard. And he also picked up his first harmonica during his tenure at Harvard. And that was around the time uh, in Boston and in Cambridge when kind of blues jug bands like, um, you know, Jim Queskin or uh, the Beacon Street Union were like kind of these, I would almost call them like burned out blues. So we're talking kind of, like 64, 65 or? Uh, a little later than okay. that, like 66 era, you know, is when he's kind of entered the music scene and he's going out and opening for little walter or whatever blues musicians are coming through the area and there's all these bands happening that are kind of yeah in 64 and 65 the scene was bigger the butterfield type scene was bigger but that's where he came out of and um so when he got his record deal in 69 for night of the blue communion you might have expected him to be you know because he was this credible by that time blues harmonica player who'd been you know acclaimed by by local musicians and by you know, I, I've heard rumors that B.B. King or whoever said that he was the greatest thing on two legs that honked on a harmonica. But um, anyway, he uh, you would have expected him to do something in that genre. And he kind of when Night of the Blue Communion came out, I think that's one of the true oddities of 60s music. I mean, he, he could have just done a boring blues rock record, but that record is is out of its mind. And that's not what we just heard. We heard his album from a few years later, Terminal Love, uh, which is a little bit poppier. Maybe we'll hear some of Night of the Blue Communion later. So, yeah, he's obviously somebody who was challenging things. Even even back then when things were, when challenging things was boring, you know, and then <laughs> he was still challenging them in an interesting way. And so, um, so yeah, he came out of that scene and, and drifted to Hollywood because of his record deals with Warner Brothers and, you know, he opened for the New York Dolls and wore a diaper on stage and managed to kind of alienate himself to their audience. You know, get gobbed at and you mean too <laughs> out of out of too out of the box for the punks. Yeah, stuff. exactly. So even back then, when you know you could go up there in a dress and lipstick and wag your butt around or whatever, he managed to freak people out, and the people in his band were horrified. I interviewed Paul Lenart, his guitar player, and said. You know, they were all excited. They had this showcase gig opening for the New York Dolls, and everybody who was anybody was there. And and uh, 
all of a sudden Peter comes out of his dressing room in the diaper and they're like, oh, wait a second. They're all in their cool threads, denim, you know, tight jeans, yeah, tight jeans, leather jacket things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and Peter comes out in a diaper and, and I think they got through a song and a half before they were booed off stage. So that was like his big coming out party for that album. We just heard Terminal Love, the title track from. So now a lot of his his friends are are more successful some of his hollywood friends are more successful and you know he's one of the things i would say that he's most identified with along with the new wave theater in, in today's cultural circles is is the penning of the the heaven the lady in in the radiator song which you know has such a prominent role in in david lynch's eraser head how did that get into eraser head well um my understanding is that he was uh, he'd moved out to LA because of his Warner Brothers record deal and just in an effort to to do something for his career to make it I guess and uh, he was hanging around it was suggested to him that he should go hang around at AFI and see if anybody needed any music for their movies because there were a lot of upstart filmmakers David Lynch was one of those and uh, they hit it off and um, apparently the song was put together really quickly demoed by Peter David Lynch loved it and uh, well they wrote they wrote the lyrics together and not that there's very many of those and uh, and I think that's a big reason um, at least in the punk era in the new wave theater era why why anyone would have recognized him you know who was on the show I think Jello Biafra had actually seen Peter Ivers didn't came and did a lecture wherever Jello went to school and and Jello was fascinated that he was actually in the room with the guy who wrote the song from Eraserhead you know and and uh so I gave him some of his cred I guess because I don't think that anything else would have uh amounted to cred for for what he'd accomplished although those records are are interesting and and wonderful that he made in the 70s and and in the the late 60s but uh and his uh, all the music he wrote for tv shows and things like that would certainly not be something the punks like he wrote songs for starsky and hutch and uh, uh ron howard's first feature film grand theft auto somehow that's not the touchstone that uh Eraserhead is though with uh, the underground folks so and on that subject we're going to hear another band this is 45 grave who appeared i think quite a, a number of times on on new wave theater oh yeah many times and and offshoots of 45 grave and you know in various lineups kind of part of the ur bands that became christian death in the southern california death rock yeah you know, kind of birthing along with voodoo church and a few of the other ones and uh you know i, I can only imagine that you know, there are these young guys pulling up to tape at New Wave Theater and they're, you know, just kind of the the ability to kind of wear whatever they want and be seen must have been so powerful to bring that scene together. I think that they, um, you know, would show up at those tapings. And uh, I, I think Don Bowles at one time, like, just walks off stage with one band and walks over to the setup next door and the camera pans and he's sitting on the drums in another band. They, they all, mean, all those guys, Dinah and she's in... Uh, What's she in? She's in Castration. Yeah, Castration Squad. Castration Squad as well. Uh, you know, Don was in. Don I, was you in. You see him in the background of uh, tons of 50, bands. 50, <laughs> 50 different bands. And Vox Pop uh, has members who are in the Angry Samoans. And so there's there's obviously some cross-pollination going on that uh, is exciting. It makes it seem like there's more of a scene, although maybe these people, you know, they weren't making money or getting famous, so they probably didn't think they were part of a big scene. <laughs> like we do <laughs> now in retrospect 
the Don Bowles band sideband scene. Yeah, he's still going. Yeah. Yeah. Here's forty five grade. Basically, a consumer like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Buy, sell, produce. I'm a little robot. <laughs> Donna Cancer. Don. 
Paul, you're pretty angry, huh? Here wrote the song. <laughs> okay, I asked him before who was, he, who was the leader of the beat, and Reggie told me. 
I said we're very democratic. <laughs> so that what is really the relationship of the group to each other? Sleep with each other? <laughs> Whenever possible. <laughs> Whenever possible. In the broadcasting center. Here's Dave. A stupid, a stupid version of Michael Keane. Could you guys see the Arabs really enjoying your music? Yes. People all over the world. Too stupid for the whole world. And here's one. Say it again. Can the Arabs enjoy this music? Yes, they can. Uh, where were you when Kennedy was killed? In the car. In Cuba. Come up here, one. But that's sending out his answers from the past here. What? Uh, where were you five years ago? Uh, yeah, I have to fill it out in the census form every day, so. Have you ever seen a psychiatrist, even on the street? Yeah. Is your dad one? Yes. Uh, I'd like to say that human hands have responded uh, with applause. Uh, as a, if a group could be elected president, would you guys be the group? The monitor. Yeah. The monitor and the Merrimack. Yeah. All right. Let me say that this is human hands. See you later. Bye. Take me on my bike. Two tracks from New Wave Theater from the early 80s from Los Angeles. Human hands. Stupid world before that 45 grave with evil. So tell me. How did New Wave Theater come to be? Well, the story goes that David Jove, um, who is the producer, director, basic uh, genius behind New Wave Theater, for lack of a better word, um, was interested in videotape. He um, had borrowed a camera and and was shooting um his wife lotus or his his girlfriend who the mother of his child lotus weinstock's comedy for performances and was thinking maybe there was some kind of business angle to video at the time his concept was maybe to um make demo tapes to um for unsigned bands to give to record companies so that they'd have some visual element you know rather than just the, the traditional demo tape and so he was experimenting. He went around and shot some bands and uh, in clubs, and was watching the footage back and playing it for people. And and he um, ran into this guy Paul Ryan, who had a cable access show interviewing movie stars at the time, and said, "How did you do that? How do you get on the air with a cable access show?" And he said, "Well, it's really easy. You know, you go down there. They're looking for people. It's you know, you pay thirty dollars for the tape stock, and you're on the air." And so. Um, the first New Wave Theater episode, it was actually going to be called Un- Unidentified Flying Music. They seemed to be kind of on the fence as to whether it was going to be that and or New Wave Theater. And throughout that episode, the first episode, they call it both. And um, and that episode doesn't really have any famous bands on it. I think Joanna Went is on it, but it's mostly uh, Jove and his friends in, in costumes doing songs, like lip syncing, many of them. It's not, it's not the same creature it turned out to be it's funny you know it, it's totally different um the idea i think was always to get unsigned energetic young bands and to harness the energy of the new wave scene and i think they were very earnest and serious about um you know getting the kids together and you know overthrowing the government as part of david jove's kind of oto agenda um 
and what maybe came across later as this smarmy, smug theater that they were doing in their interviews where they were confronting the bands and asking them challenging intellectual questions and, and about the nature of existence or the meaning of life. Uh, at first, they were really, you know, they had this serious, not sarcastic, smug philosophy. And, and you know, Joe was convinced that, you know, maybe that he could reach people or whatever with this show. The first episode's kind of ridiculous, though, because they didn't really have, you know, I don't know if they were connected to the to these underground bands they'd heard about um, yet. Although, within a couple of weeks, I think Angry Samoans are on episode two or three. And and once they got through, the floodgates opened and, and everybody who knew everybody started showing up and the show was turning people away. How did Jove and Ivers meet? Was this something around 1977, 1978, and was it, was it OTO connected? No, uh, Ivers wasn't a part of that. Uh, he was a scenester. They, th- there's no amazing story about how they actually met. I think they just kind of knew each other, sort of. Like, you know somebody who you see out at shows or at parties, and it came up, hey, I want to do this show. Would you be interested in being a guest host? And Peter was supposed to just be on as a guest host, and every week there was going to be a different guest host hosting the show. But everybody kind of liked it, like the results they got out of that first episode. And, and the way Peter acted on camera was appealing and magnetic. And I think they all felt they they had something there and so um he stayed on indefinitely and you know was there for about three years and so uh yeah uh I think it just happened like they say by accident you know he just kind of fell into it and it just seemed to work now we're gonna hear a track by Oxygen this is one of David Jove's bands this is the first performance from any new wave theater ever <laughs> it was uh in early 1980 episode one ivers uh introduces the show with one of his monologues it's a little bit different format than the later new wave theater shows but he talks about the burgeoning underground scene in los angeles and bringing the music to the kids and to the streets and blah 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 and and uh he makes a really impassioned plea and then introduces one of the um great up-and-coming new underground bands oxygen which is david jove in costume and it's not live like later new wave theater performances are basically all live uh it's a it's a lip sync track and jove is heavily costumed in a devil outfit and he does this song called uh, the bones of hollywood so for my first my the first live performance that they do it's the producer's band it's the producer's band it's an inside job here it is <laughs> garbage man from the dump a fan with feet sold all the parts at max swap meat at max swap meat and people circled around like crows bums went picking through his toes nothing left now and no one knows not a drop to drink anywhere in hollywood in hollywood you could have saved the world sidetracked by the little girl hollywood you could have been a star hollywood you could have gone Gave it all up for a swimming pool and a little girl. Hollywood died before his time. He never made a movie that lost a dime. Failed to heal the wounds of man. And he always had the power in his hands. And then he squandered it. He had the power, had the pearl. Sidetracked 
I'm here with Ian Marshall, director of the upcoming Peter Ivers documentary, Terminal Love. And behind us, we're listening to Peter Ivers with his band and Yolande Bavan, Cat Scratch Fever, Night of the Blue Communion, 1969, at an epic. And that was part of the uh, kind of the serious music that Ivers himself did in his early days and uh, his own musical interests as opposed to what he kind of became famous for with New Wave Theater. Yeah, and he ended up popifying himself a little bit. I think by the time he was on New Wave Theater with his band Vitamin Pink and they were more of a kind of theatrical, um, off-Broadway, New Wave kind of feel <laughs> than, uh, than like anything resembling, uh, you know, Vox Pop or something like that there, um, or Geza X, you know, he wasn't that new wave, but he, he definitely incorporated a little bit more of it into his act. And he actually, um, his band was populated by new wave theater hangers on and, um, you know, audience members and, and the, the woman tequila mockingbird who, uh, was the stage manager of new Wave theater was his, uh, backup singer in, in vitamin pink. And so he became, I, I think he legitimately became New Wave on more of the kind of B-52s end of the spectrum by the end of his life. Now, there must have been tons of people who, you know, were personally influenced by being able to, to see this kind of music and to have this outlet. Now, it, it originally aired on UHF Channel 18. Yes, Theta Cable in Los Angeles, which I guess is the equivalent to what you guys have here, Manhattan Cable Access, or is that all gone now? Or? We, st- we still have that, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've, we've got some good shows still showing good music videos on, on the, the stations, too. So other things that were on Theta at the time, I guess, was the Paul Ryan show that I mentioned earlier, and, uh, and uh, you know, just your regular religious programming, and I think later on, uh, Art Finds Poker Party, which is a show that has like 50s and 60s rock and rollers. Like he got Screaming Jay Hawkins and people on TV in the 80s when nobody cared about them. So there's a pretty fertile cable access scene uh, in L.A. in the 80s. Because this is Z Channel, the other, you know, the great 80s underground movie channel in L.A. In LA that was more of a that was a direct cable channel, right? Yeah. And uh I'm I'm not sure because I wasn't in LA at the time. I anything I saw of New Wave Theater was on the USA network via a satellite dish from Canada and, and after it it's run, you know, around the time that maybe they were airing the best of New Wave Theater, but yeah, I don't know how that worked. Cable cable access isn't that just like a yeah. you know, channel 13 or whatever a- on exactly. the free TV. Yeah. Right? So, I don't know where the cable comes into it. So it was all so kind of easy to do because you just kind of flick some channels and kind of play yeah. with the satellite and play with little antenna and the TV ears, and suddenly you'd be seeing, you know, ohm or human hands or 45 grave. I think, you know, that it's really uh, amazing what they did on New Wave Theater. Maybe they did it by accident. Maybe they were geniuses. But I think it was really the... Um, a free music on television situation that maybe has never happened since or before or after. Um, They really just put the word out and bands signed up and they showed up and brought their gear. And uh, they, 
I think it was different. They shot it at the Cable Access studio early on, but they realized that in order to throw these kind of parties, um, in order to get all these people to drag their gear out there and have these punk rockers, they had to find some other situation. So they found a club. It's actually a huge place, warehouse size, like palladium size club in LA called Florentine Gardens. And um, they would rent that out um, from the early evening until the early, early, early morning. And they would shoot constantly. And the way that they developed this style for shooting the show, um, which was kind of different, was they just used the discotheque lighting, you know, that was wired into the ceiling um, to illuminate everything. And the bands would set up around the circumference of the room each band in a different kind of little area, all their gear, amps, everything, kind of positioning themselves under the pre-existing lights, and the cameras would move around from band to band. And so they'd shoot angry Samoans, and then, okay, cut, run over to the next band where, you know, uh, chaos or somebody would be set up. And so, uh, and they'd have people bring their friends, their friends of friends, Peter Ivers, slick Hollywood buddies like Harold Ramis and uh, John Belushi would show up for the tapings intermingled with, you know, uh, the guy from the Angry Samoans' girlfriend and, uh, you know, dudes who uh, were friends of the security guards at Florentine Gardens. And so, and they would just mill around all night. They were like parties, basically. So you get that vibe, but they um, they didn't really require that because they were su- supposedly showcasing exclusively unsigned bands. They really championed the kids coming in off the streets at New Wave Theater, and uh, unlike maybe Target Video, who has a similar kind of um, they've preserved a similar archive of that period in L.A. But I kind of feel like Target stuff, as great as it is. They're, they're going out and filming and capturing this stuff after these bands have kind of been ordained as being cool or important there's, or special. Yeah, there's something kind of almost professional about some of the target mm-hmm. efforts. Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, you know, the Dickies, they're cool. We can shoot them now. Whereas New Wave Theater, like, got all this crap in there. and <laughs> Some of them made it. Some of them didn't. Some of them went up there and did ridiculous things, fouled up their songs. They were given one chance, and then David Jove would shout, Cut! Okay, we're moving on. No, but we didn't get it right. All right, you're out of here. You know, you're done. And so they'd <laughs> move the cameras over and start on the next band. And it just, um, and then th- if you weren't happy with your performance, you dragged your gear back there next week and tried it again. So now we have a, a special treat, which is you brought some original fan letters that were written to New Wave Theater. Yeah, they wrote fan letters. Mostly they were urged to write fan letters by um, Peter Ivers and the guests on the show because uh, USA was always threatening to take them off the air, you know, post-82, because they weren't getting a great national response, and I think the network was unhappy about it. And they were probably getting as many angry letters. But they saved a, a cache of really, um, I think, special, hilarious um letters that just make the point of what a beacon this was in in the world of uh, television for any fan of punk or new wave music stranded out in the suburbs somewhere. So Emily is now going to read one of the fan letters that was received. Okay, so this one is the postmark says 1982. So 
I imagine, okay, this is by Colleen Frankhart from, uh, wo, uh, wo, was it Woso? Wisconsin, something like Woso. Warsaw. Does it say Warsaw? Anyways, I like to think of her as probably like the, the girl who found like the one Fiorucci like day glow sweatshirt in the mall and she's like but maybe like has a lot of um, followers but she's very very articulate she writes dear new wave theater being one of three new wavers in a wisconsin town of thirty-two thousand is a rather lonely existence therefore i'm eternally grateful for your weekly haven of taste and bizarreness i see you every sunday morning at 1 30. Peter Ivers is welcome at my house in the early morning hours anytime as long as he doesn't bring Zachary. I caught your clip of the Circle Jerks a few weeks ago and it sent me into multiple orgasm. Nice work, guys. Can, can I see? Oh, yeah, wait, wait. Are there New Wave Theater t-shirts, buttons, bumper stickers, chastity belts? I'm willing to give you money and slash or my body for any of the above. How about it? Please, underline three times, send me a price list. Just wondering, have you had or would you consider having appearances by any of the following? Suburban Lawns, Klaus Nomi, P.I.L., or Killer Pussy? They are all wonderful. Please consider it. Once again, if you have a price list, send me one. Or send me Peter in a plain brown wrapper. Thanks. All right. Very nice. So, yeah, I think that that kind of says it all about... Um, how this was reaching the odd person out there. I mean, it must have just been fascinating. I was too young, but uh, to turn on TV and see this stuff and, and actually like it and appreciate it. And let's now hear Ohm. This is a, a very weird band, uh, which actually was on my premium this year. Uh, it's a solo guy. Um, Larry Robinson. Larry Robinson. He released one LP in 1980 called Spiritual Technology, which is one of my top wants. Um, he is a priest of the Baha'i faith, I believe. And um, you were saying he was in Mooseheart Faith? Yeah, I think now he's in Mooseheart Faith with um, Todd Homer from the Angry Samoans. They occasionally put out these uh, records in Germany that are psychedelic opuses. Now, if, if we were watching the video of this, what would we see? You would see... Um, Larry wearing, um, who's like a young black teenager, wearing probably um, glasses with uh, different tinted lenses in either eye, and have a bunch of tape recorders and little doodads and pedals and electronic equipment all wired together in some system that only he knows how to operate. And um, he's like a, a ramshackle mad scientist on New Wave Theater, and he was a regular and I think really um, respected and loved and was always brought back onto New Wave the Theater, even though sometimes the performances could be a little bit uh, tedious and noisy, but it's great stuff. Here's me to you. Thank you. 
So this one
There's just nobody alive that's as great as him, so we don't need him. So I wonder if you can What's it mean, Mary? She means when she dies, she's going to um, have a date with him. A hot date. Castration Squad there, and I, I think that that's one of the more famous tracks from New Wave Theater in a certain sense, and that I know it's up on, on YouTube, and uh, they're kind of a uh, an er, you know, kind of female punk goth, proto-goth band, future members of Christian Death and 45 Grave and all that kind of goodies. Um, but still preserving the, the uh, basic elements of, uh, of the classic girl group. Yes. Mm. The pop. You know, it's all over it. The song about the date with your dream guy. Exactly. Now, let me ask a question. Um, all the New Wave Theater stuff up on YouTube, and there's, con- con- considering how extensive the New Wave Theater archive is, um, do you have you put up any of that stuff on YouTube? or? I can't do it because not only am I um, working on this documentary, but I have my job is I'm a video archivist at a place that licenses television footage. And a lot of it, um, a lot of the material that we license is like famous variety TV shows from the 70s, 60s, 50s, stuff like the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour and the Dinah Shore Show. And so New Wave Theater is another show that we represent. And um, it's just, I can't do it because I'm in that position of licensing the stuff because I would be breaking um, people's copyrights. <laughs> so I, Does it ever drive you crazy, though, when you see something that's of a mediocre quality, when you're like, if, if it was out here in the yeah. quality that people... you know, I have really mixed did. feelings about it, um, because I know that it's, you know, if, if it's difficult to put this stuff out legitimately, and so um, it's expensive, it, it it's made kind of difficult by the industry, and so 
uh, it's keeping an an interest and an appetite for the material out there. Sometimes I see things up there that I wonder how they got there, but um, you know, this stuff was on TV in the in the v- VCR era, so people taped it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is the camera originals for New Wave Theater exist. There's beautiful quality on all this stuff uh, for a cable access show. I mean, beautiful. It's not high def, but it's uh, it looks and sounds great. It's not like crummy at all. It's it was very professionally shot, and so yeah, that's a little disappointing sometimes when you see the blurry stuff on YouTube. Now, what are you going to be screening on Friday here in New York at the the 92nd Street Wise Tribeca location? Yes, we're we're having a special Peter Ivers new wave theater salute and we're going to screen a little over an hour's worth of highlights some of the more famous acts that appeared on new wave theater such as um fear and uh angry samoans i guess if that's a famous band to any of you out there (laughs) would be included amongst the likes of lesser known talents like monitor hollywood trash geza x uh, but it's a good mix, and I kind of picked stuff to show because it's really hard for me because I've archived so much of the stuff, and I've become fans of things I didn't know about. And I can sit through um, Pompeii 99, and I always have to ask myself, well, is is somebody else going to want to sit through this? And I, then, like, I like Pompeii 99. Yeah. <laughs> that could just be me. Well, I mean, I, I think there is an audience for all of this music. I think it's probably more pertinent and more um, universal now than it ever was. And But, you know, it's a good mix. I tried to balance a little bit of the more obscure stuff to make those people happy with the stuff that would maybe get people in the door, like Black Flag or whatever. And so, but a lot of interviews and a lot of funny stuff. I even put some uh, period commercials in there um, that were produced by the new wave theater crew for like uh, local new wave clubs and um, record spots by uh, upstart bands on vanity pressings. You know, Peter Rivers is out there hawking their records. So it's cool stuff. And it's just a palatable mix that I think is really watchable and fun and full of music and comedy and theater. And what time is that starting? The screening will begin around nine. You know, there'll be a little lead up. I think Brian Turner of FMU fame will be you know getting the juices flowing with his his djing and uh we'll uh we'll be partying from eight onward but i think the screening will start uh, probably right at nine and uh that runs a little over an hour then we'll have a q a about uh we're gonna have night flights founder night flight is the sort of the parent of new wave theater they bought into it in the 80s now they basically own new wave theater they're interested in doing something with it aside from the documentary I'm working on. Um, they want to see this stuff get out as well. And so they're, they want <laughs> this event is basically just to see who's out there, see who wants to uh, have New Wave Theater on DVD or, you know, screened around the country at midnight movie type events, which seems unlikely and uh, dated <laughs> kind of <laughs> idea, kind of but that's what re- we're doing. Really wonderful. And this is at the 92nd Street Y, not on 92nd Street, but in Tribeca. Yes, on Hudson. I think 201 Hudson. Yeah. I'm going to take a stab at that. And uh, there will be a band following the screening and Q&A. It's an all-star, in parentheses, star. 
uh, tribute, salute to New Wave Theater. Some of the more famous bands that appeared on it, uh, you know, they're, the band's going to play kind of party band cover versions of some of those tracks, along with some of the more famous Peter Ivers material, if the word famous can be used uh, with Peter Ivers in the same sentence. And, uh, you know, at the Q&A, we're going to talk about the murder and some of the exciting behind-the-scenes stuff with New Wave Theater, and we're going to take your questions, and the band is going to um, be hilarious and fun and exciting. And we're going to now listen to Nervous Genders Commit Suicide, which is one of the tracks you're going to play, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the end of New Wave Theaters and, and unfortunately, as it would happen, the, the untimely end of Mr. Ivers as well. Um, now this is a track, Nervous Gender, Commit Suicide, it's, they're just one of the legendary bands, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, there's always a misconception, um, that San Francisco had all of this interesting kind of dark, weird synth punk kind of going on, when in actuality, you know, kind of one of the, the records that everyone kind of points to, uh, as, as being a, a, a primo example of that SF, you know, kind of weirdness, is only considered to be an SF record because it came out on Subterranean, and that's the Nervous Gender Music from Hell LP. And uh, I had Nervous Gender stop by Choking and Cufflinks at my second L.A. remote. Uh, I love that record. Um, I know they appeared on New Wave Theater numerous, numerous times. Yes, they're well, they're on there three times, I think. And they have all sorts of side bands and friends that are on there, and yeah. they're part of the entire... They're like house musicians for New Wave Theater, more or less. <laughs> three appearances, and you're in, you're in the world's most dangerous band for New Wave Theater. So, um, Yeah, and we're going to show this clip tomorrow night, so if you're uh, intrigued by the sounds you hear, come out and see the sights and smell the smells. And listen to Nervous Gender...
come I can't hear myself? What is this? Is this too much for you folks? All right. Beautiful. And uh, that was Commit Suicide, which did not make music from hell, Nervous Gender, probably live, 1980. Now, yes. tell me about, about what happens. 1982, New Wave Theater, successful. Night Flight purchases it or takes it over to start yeah. beaming it through cable into the homes of, of millions of people nationwide. Yes, and they started um, making the show a little bit more big budget. They went to three cameras and even four cameras on one episode. Um, they had video editing or, you know, what's those kind of effects generators and things like that on, on site. So um, it's, it's a different show for me. I kind of prefer the earlier stuff that's a little more raw. And when they start getting into kind of the artistry of of video and putting like colored hearts and stuff in, in the middle of the clips, it becomes less about the performance for me. But um, I still think it's cool looking. And they did some cool effects. And it's great if you love 80s video art. But uh, anyway, so the show becomes um, a controversial hit. Uh, it's probably the least popular thing on Night Flight. But... Uh, is won the hearts of a important percentage of the audience who uh, feel really strongly about it. And I think they'd threatened to take it off the air a couple of times due to the um, re viewer response being a little bit uh, weak. And fans wrote in and saved the show on a couple of occasions. And uh, But it had been a long two or three years for Peter Ivers, and uh, he was starting to get a little restless, um, like he was in the period after his uh warner brothers record deal fell through in like 76 and he was looking for something and when he found new wave theater that was it and then this kind of went on and he was looking to move on to other things and he was writing a screenplay with another major label cut out been a classic artist roderick falconer called mm -hmm. the city of tomorrow and they'd written this screenplay that, which got optioned i think for a significant sum of money i think peter's end was something like 10 or 15 grand and so peter decided he was going to devote his energy to that and leave new wave theater in march 83 now they hadn't taped anything since 82 they were on kind of a hiatus and also it was up in the air whether or not um night flight was going to renew them and so um at that so peter got together taped some they were editing the, the final few shows and uh, he got together with david jove and explained that he was moving on uh, and I believe that's March 3rd, 1983, um, that he quit New Wave Theater, and at 2 a.m. the following morning, he was dead. And so uh, there's kind of a coincidental, you know, very mysterious and fascinating uh, murder mystery here, which is the subject of the documentary uh, that I terminal love which i'm working on and uh and if you want to know more about this also i'd recommend picking up 
Josh Frank's book, In Heaven, Everything is Fine, because he goes into the case in great detail, although nothing's really solved. Uh, but we feel like it could be solved. And the case was closed for 20 years, right? And it's now been... Yeah, it was reopened, reopened because of Josh's book. And, uh, and, and I think maybe with DNA testing on the murder weapon, which was this Victorian mallet, which was used to hammer in the pegs of a circus tent, you know, back in those days, this big, heavy, wooden found object, which was propping open... Uh, Ivor's loft bedroom loft door was what uh, was used one blow to the head killed him uh, sometime that night May, I mean two, two in the morning is the last time anybody heard from him I think he made a phone call so it could have happened any time between 2 and 12 the next afternoon but um, the theory that the cops came up with at the time was that uh, it was a crackhead or drug addict because um, where Ivers lived on Alameda and Third Street area in downtown Los Angeles is very close to Skid Row. And at that time, it was like not at all a um, neighborhood you'd want to walk around in at night. It was like a tent city of drifters and drug addicts. And so uh, robberies and break-ins were common, very violent sinister murders where the victim's face is covered up you know after it's been pounded in were not so common so um me and a lot of other people think that there's more to the story and that's what i want to explore partly in this documentary on top of just looking at these fascinating characters especially peter uh and uh he's just a, a unique guy whose journey let him uh into this fascinating world of L.A. punk rock, and then uh, it ended too soon uh, under very mysterious circumstances, but with a lot of great um, cultural references of, you know, forming the backdrop, so. Now, can I ask a question? Yeah. If I want to find out more information about the movie, is there a, a website or a place I should be contacting you or following Well, up? you can, uh, terminallove.com is mine, but it hasn't, been launched yet but uh, it will have stuff on it right now we're shooting interviews and um, you know basically uh, crawling along um, probably early in the new year we'll go on another rush of interviews we've shot interviews with a few uh, important people like we shot Devo last month and some of Ivers Harvard um, people and uh, Paul Michael Glazer, who played Starsky and Starsky and Hutch, was a great friend of Peter's, was actually one of the first people to show up at the murder scene after, um, after you know, the word got around. And apparently the story with him uh, goes like this. He shows up at the scene, pulls up, he's distraught. There's beat cops hanging out, out uh, you know, kind of trying to manage this crowd of Peter's friends who've showed up. And one of them looks to him and apparently earnestly said starsky oh thank god you're here what do we do <laughs> and so, mm -hmm. so um that was pretty funny but uh just the light the lighter side of something that is a very dark story but um you know peter i think is a an inspirational character in that i think that 
especially with the opinions that a lot of people have uh, about hardcore punk rock. You know, this show had the mentors on it, and, and maybe they're not the hardest hardcore band, but it had everybody from Bad Religion to Black Flag to the mentors and all this dark energy, and the songs are a dirgy and about death and violence. And uh, I think he really uh, was able to convey um, to the audience of new wave theater the positive side of this music how it was all creativity how it was um important that the the kids had a message they wanted to get out and this stuff sounds kind of hokey but i think he really appreciated that and and was um had the vision to be like an older kind of 60s mentality type person who, who could appreciate punk rock and new wave music and and help uh, explain it or even confront it i mean sometimes he wanted these people to make sense of what they were saying put them on the spot i mean that's the theater and new wave theater and i think sometimes it's hilarious sometimes it's beautiful what the what the kids came up with on that show when they were confronted by ivor's strange prodding questions and uh with that i'll issue a little reminder that uh friday night here in new york December 18. There is a uh, screening of some of the New Wave Theater clips, further discussion of the life of Peter Ivers in New Wave Theater, and uh, the all-star band playing Ivers' music and some of the more popular tunes from New Wave Theater. They're called the Pink Gherkins, and if you watch New Wave Theater, you might know that a gherkin is the type of uh, being that you don't want to be associated with. A gherkin is the ultimate gherkoid of the universe, you know the worst thing ever but these gherkins are pink ones so they're good exactly thank you very much ian all right thank you for having me michael i really i can't tell you how much i look forward to watching the movie and to hearing more about this story which is just so fascinating and and i i have to tell you receiving your database your listing of all the camera angles and, and all the recordings of all the bands on new wave theater it was like this amazing portal back into the early 80s of all these bands that history had forgotten and all of these artists who had you know been overshadowed for so long by you know bands like the angry samoans and and the like and it was just really wonderful to see that that was out there doing that job you know archiving every camera angle of you know a hundred and some hours of this footage was just mind-blowing and kind of a dream job you know it was like being a fly on the wall at these tapings and really experiencing that culture from multiple angles and getting to know all, all the kids and all the audience members and the people who introduced the bands and did the joke commercials. I mean, I just existed in that world when I was building that database. So I really hope that um, everybody gets to see this stuff because I think it's one of the most comprehensive documents of any scene anywhere at any time. I can't. I can't think of another yeah. one. No, it's just so fantastic. And there are a lot of like crummy bar bands and stuff that I, I still love them because I love that era. I mean, that's truly what if you think that you were in L.A. in 1980, that every band was a cool synth punk band. Yeah, exactly. you probably have trouble finding one. You know, honestly, you'd wander into every single venue and be frustrated at the fact that nobody was booking those bands. It was all people, you know, kind of doing uh, well, dirgy uh wannabe zeppelin-y stuff still even after you know the sex pistols after devo there was this uh probably still true today progressive rock thing you know and before the metal boom you know that was huge in la and so 
this these slick bar bands were like everywhere and they're on new wave theater too and they're funny and i think the stuff is you know who else has hundreds of hours of, of <laughs> bar bands on tape from 1980 so i'm glad it exists if it's not castration squad and uh tune in next week for more choking on cufflinks <laughs>